creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. 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 Do you ever feel like uh, completely in knots about the stuff you're making? Like maybe you have these like vague impressions of stuff you know you need to be working on, but you just are so unclear about what it is or what it looks like or how it works or you just don't have any of the answers. I get in this place a lot. In fact, I'm right in the thick of a big personal project behind the scenes in which more than ever in my creative journey, I feel mystified. (laughs) I feel like I know I have to do it, but I also have no idea what it is. I just have like some threads to pull at. And that's a very uncomfortable place for me as a kind of creator who leans towards the plotter type, the person who wants to outline everything, know the end before I get started, that kind of situation. And so I have just been kind of stuck there. And so I was thrilled to have the honor of speaking with a poet legend and a local creative hero, as well as a national treasure uh, in terms of um, poetry, poet Maggie Smith. Now, not the uh, actor Maggie Smith, poet Maggie Smith. She's based here and from Columbus, Ohio, and she's completely legendary around these parts. And she's also beloved by so many people that are poetry fans and beyond, you know, people in the music industry and in Hollywood and everywhere in between for her very real metaphor rich writing and poetry. And She has this new memoir out that I got, again, lucky enough to get an advanced copy and read and just soaked in, and it's really, really incredible. It's called You Could Make This Place Beautiful, and it just came out. It was an instant New York Times bestseller, and I'm I'm thrilled that I got to speak with her about her creative process because it gave me a lot of tools for digging into my own creative questions and, and creating without answers, but to, to explore, which this whole book is all about. And I, I loved this book. It's metaphor rich and analogy rich. As you know, I'm that's my number one jam as a creator and storyteller. And I just felt like it also, uh, it's a, it's a story about her trying to find how she got into this place where she had this marriage and in divorce and was just feeling lost. And I feel, uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but I, I talked to Maggie about this a little bit. It felt to me almost like I could relate on the level of with everything that's been going on in the world, I feel like we all have divorced significant parts of ourselves from just a few years ago. And and to me, her personal story acts as a kind of specific example and a, and a um, kind of an allegory to all the things that we've been going through. And it was really validating and moving and encouraging in a way that wasn't simplistic or 
you know what? It's a long conversation. I didn't cut anything out. I just want you, I want to get to it. Um, it, it just, there was just no thing I wanted to get rid of. So I think that, uh, spend some time with Maggie. I was super pumped to get to, and I hope that I get to do it again because, um, she's just deeply creatively inspiring to me. Uh, and, and towards the end, we'll get into a creative prompt that I think is really, really powerful, not just for your creativity, but kind of a creative career prompt on how to use what you do and who you are in, and apply it to the opportunities that are in front of you to um, a really great effect. All right, I'll shut up. Here is my conversation with poet Maggie Smith. First, So we got our first factor meals and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef crafted dietitian approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how factor meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low calorie. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. Oh, I loved your book. Thank you. And I'm a really slow reader. Um, and I, so it took me a while, but that's just because I read in little chunks. And well, um, I write in little chunks. And you write, L- yeah, exactly. Lucky us. It works perfectly because <laughs> I just read a chunk every day. And uh, and I just really loved it. And I, and I kind of want to talk shop a little bit, but also I'm really curious about certain decisions that you made. But the first thing I wanted to ask you was about music because mm. music plays a role I know in your life also throughout the book. And I wondered if, do you play music? No. Okay. Well, that was my guess. And here's why, because not because <laughs> I thought this person doesn't know crap about music. <laughs> I'm like, cause I'm not jaded at all no. about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, because I wondered if we had a similar story where I didn't play music, but then I got obsessed with music and making merch was like my way of co- feeling like I was part of the band. And I wondered if poetry had any element of that for you. Oh, I love that. You know, I started writing poems before I really started reading poetry. Right. And yeah, it yeah. really came more from listening to music. So I, I had sense. this like period where um, I would like sit in my bedroom listening to my own like cassette tapes at the time and my parents' records and trying to sort of like transcribe the lyrics from these songs onto notebook paper mm. and hear what they were saying and not always getting it right, you know, yeah. the sort of misheard lyrics. Um, and yeah. that I think is really where the poetry impulse for me came from because as a kid I was reading mostly fiction. I think we all read mostly novels. That's what's assigned. That's, that's sort of like when you go to the library, that's what you get. Yeah. And I, even to this day, I'm not sure my brain is a plot brain. I think mm. my brain is like a, I tend to lean more toward like distilling mm. 
moments or sort of like capturing small things. And so storytelling wasn't my impulse, but imagery and metaphor and kind of like trying to get to the essential like bit or, you know, kernel of an experience. And I thought that's what songs are doing. I mean, at least the really, the really good ones. Yeah. I mean, I'm really fascinated by that because I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out because a lot of the work that I do, whether it's picture books or talks or podcasts or whatever, comics are uh, analogies and metaphors and and stories. Um, And I am mostly obsessed with the, that the juicy bit, like how do you get to that almost like a punchline? Like I am, and that's, one of the reasons I love your work um, and I, and I love the book and, but I, I don't know, my, my wife and I just wrote a kid's book and we come at it com- at, in a completely different way. Like she comes at it with like vibe, tone, atmosphere, and I'm coming at it through like a almost more philosophically of like, what's this about? Mm. Uh, so it's very much I'm up in the clouds and she's like grounded in the sensory, you know, what, which one do you relate to? You know, I think I, I toggle okay. at different parts yeah. of the process, but I think my entry point into any piece of writing, I have a, I have a kid's book coming out next year you too. Do? Yeah, That's I do. Cool. I did not illustrate it because they were like, <laughs> really, we don't want like stick people drawn with Sharpie on a pizza box. Is that what you submitted? Yeah. yeah. And they were like, mm, we love the words, but we're going to go ahead and shop this right. around for a different illustrator. Yeah. Yeah, I think my entry point into any piece of writing, like whether it's a poem or an essay or a chapter of this book, is a specific thing. Like it usually begins in a sensory experience. It's like a scrap of language I overhear or my inner voice, which doesn't sound like you, but maybe from now on (laughs) will sound like you. I'll be happy to narrate. (laughs) You're my inner voice, my muse. Yeah. Um, I'm like, there's this fearsome angel that comes to me delivering <laughs> palms and it's Andy. It's so weird. I actually feel guilty for making a podcast that's 400 episodes for anybody that's listened that long. I'm like, I'm in your head now. Yeah. It's in, like it's permanent. Cause you, I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but yeah. that is the case for me. So yeah. 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 I mean, it was going to be you or Ira Glass. Yeah, so I think right. Probably a lot of Ira Glasses in people's heads. Yeah, sure, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I usually start with something really particular and because I don't know what it's about, mm-hmm. like I can't start with the, the, mm. the aboutness of a thing because I don't know what a thing is about until usually I'm done with it yeah. or at least a good way through. And, and sometimes, I mean, I'm not even sure I'm the authority on what it's quote about because what I write is maybe about something to me and then I send it off like, you know, a message in a bottle and it lands on someone else's shore and they pick it up and it's about something else to them and they're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that is probably the main question that I had for you, which is this book is the, the impulse behind the book and we can kind of, I'll give you the option. We can either yeah. start talking <laughs> shop or we could talk about the book a little bit first. It doesn't matter to me. Okay. I'm up for whatever. Let's Okay. I'll do, well, let's circle back. Okay. I'm going to circle back to that because you're getting at something that I think is really unique about the way you approach creativity, which is with a question rather mm-hmm. than an answer. And so I definitely want to get back 
to that. But could you maybe first talk about what the book is about just in just generally? Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe do I you can't. know what it's about? I don't know. Yeah. Can I, yeah. can I, I mean, it's funny. Like it, 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 it bothers me so much how, how literature is taught and particularly yeah. poetry in that you are actually asked as a student to tell the teacher or to write on a test what a poem is about, what a book is about, instead of asking like, what do you notice about it? How was this thing crafted or made? What issues do you think the writer is grappling with? I mean, there's so many kind of like side door ways to get at the meat of a thing. And like, what is it about or what does it mean? Um, Always worries me because it, it feels like, reductive in a way that I never, I never really know how to give the, like, I don't have an elevator pitch for this book. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of experience between two covers, but I think maybe, maybe a way to approach it is, is the epigraph, which is the quote on the very first page before I get to say anything at all. Mm. And it's a quote from uh, the poet, Emily Dickinson. And it's, I am out with lanterns looking for myself. Yeah. And so the, it's funny, when I started writing, you could make this place beautiful. I thought the central question, because of course, like, my, I mean, my Twitter bio for a while was like a thousand, uh, a thousand questions in a trench coat, because that's how I move in the world. Like yeah. that, like annoying, you know, four-year-old energy for parents who like have small kids and, and all they do is ask why and yeah. how come I never outgrew it. I mean, that's why I do what I do. Mm. If I knew the answers to things, I wouldn't write about them because it would be boring. Yeah. I don't, I'm not interested in, in like sharing. I'm not writing manuals. I'm not sharing with readers yeah. wisdom I have and I'm imparting to you. I'm showing you almost like when you do your math homework and they don't want the answer, they want you to show your thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm showing you in the book is not just sort of what I came up with over time, but how. Mm-hmm. And in as like real a time as I can. And so when I began this book, I thought the central question was what happened? Mm. Um, you know, a la talking heads, how yeah. did I get here? Yeah. Right. This is not my beautiful life. That definitely could be the theme. That song could be the theme song of, of the book. I feel It's like. on, yeah. it's on the Spotify playlist for the okay. book. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. that's such a midlife crisis song, right? Yeah. And then as I started writing this book, I realized that's not the central question at all. The mm. central question isn't what happened because I think it's fairly obvious the nexus of things that happened or why, or how could it not have happened? I mean, none of that stuff is the question. And frankly, it's not that interesting. Mm. What was more interesting to me and, and in some ways like more affecting and, and like sadder mm. and more urgent was like, what happened to me? Like, where did I go in my adult life? Like what little rabbit hole did I disappear down into as a partner and as a mother and as a, you know, as a wife and a sister and a daughter and a neighbor and a teacher, like how, what bits of myself did I sort of snip away and bargain off? And, um, And so it ended up not being a midlife crisis book. It ended up being a sort of midlife recovery book 
the sort of like return to self book for me. Like, yeah. okay, where am I in all of this? And how do I kind of, um, I don't know. It was like a recon mission. Like, how do I get myself back? How do I remember the parts of me that predated some of this really hard life experience? And yeah. how do I honor that person and like stand up for her a little bit better than I think I have been? Yeah, that makes tons of sense. I, you said so many good things and uh, you don't probably know me well enough to know that I have pretty serious ADHD. So my working memory is awful. And so every time you said something, I was like, wait, that's, oh man, I want to go there. And then you said another thing. Um, <laughs> so, and I, I just keep go, talking and you're like, no, 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 stop, no. stop, stop, stop. No, I'm so, just I, interrupt I me anytime it. if I that's won't. easier. I won't. Cause I just, I thought it was so good, but I, I I'll start with this. So I'm going to just write a one word yeah. so that I don't forget it. Um, Okay, and I already did, but all right, I'll write that one down. And then mainly because I just don't want to lose it because I'm so interested in this. Okay. I love this because um, you're showing me your thinking. I am. You're doing the thing I we're am talking doing about. That, and I'm yeah. not good at that. I don't, I think I find it uncomfortable mainly because I think my thinking feels weird. So my I'm, thinking feels weird too. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it's what allows us to do what we do. Yeah. Like the pinging around yeah. is what allows us to do what we do. Those like you find the connections. That's and, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And so it like sometimes feels to me sort of like disorganized or chaotic or why can't I be more quote linear? Mm -hmm. And then I realized like, but that's the secret sauce. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And it, and in, in interviews, I've tried to over time allow that showing my work kind of thing because that's how I really am. And then, yeah. and if I, and the more interested I am with the, with the conversation, the more I'm going to get into my natural thinking. Um, and so, yeah, I, there's so many things you said, but I want to, I want to start with a, um, a very uh, simple disclaimer that says, I think that when it comes to my, my nature, when I go to write is answers. Mm. Now, I, but over time, I mean, I've always kind of felt like I like both. A lot of my favorite movies, a lot of my favorite things I consume are more questions. Mm -hmm. um, but I like the puzzle. I like the puzzle, the plot puzzle. And so that's what I love to create, even though, you know, my, one of my favorite movies, um, uh, Banshees, uh, of insurance. I that just that? saw that. Uh, oh my God. I'm freaking, uh, <laughs> I, I can't like, stop thinking about it. I was like, movie. this sounds like a play. I it, love this. Yeah. It sounds like Beckett. I feel like I'm, I'm want the opening scene. I was like, is this waiting for Godot? It's like, amazing. It's so good. And it feels so much like a question. It doesn't feel like this is what this is about. This is what it's saying that, you know, there's so many different th uh, things going on in, you know, movies like spirited away and all these kind of stories. I love, I'm very like attracted to that. So I don't have a value judgment. It's more just like when I approach it, I approach it almost like a riddle. You yeah. know, it's like, I want to, and that's just how, it's also kind of like how I feel like I know how to make stuff. Um, but I say that just for the groundwork of how I'm thinking through this and what makes me curious about this other way of approaching it. Mm -hmm. And the thing that... Um, as you were saying, like, okay, 
you started this book with a question, with a with an idea of what even the question was. It reminds me of a, a character in a story that wants something and it to try to meet a need, but they don't the need they're not actually clear about what they need. And so almost even the writing as a way of getting to better questions. And I think when you get the right question, all of a sudden, either the need is met or whatever, you get some kind of resolve. Uh, but I love this idea of, okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm blabbering. But. No, you're not. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just nodding away over here. I'm like, yes. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, um, could you talk a little bit about, uh, uh, and one of my favorite art words is excavating it and you know, self-expression versus self-excavating with the mm, work. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who doesn't do that naturally, actually I'm in the middle of a project uh, about my mom that I, the reason I'm so uncomfortable with it is I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah, I don't know. And it's not how I work. Uh, and so for someone in my shoes who finds it difficult to enter into the work that way, what can you speak to creating from questions rather than answers of it? Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the pleasure. Yeah. Like if I, if I sit down because I've got like an image in my head or I have like five words, you know, five words, like just a little start into something. I don't know where it's going. That's that's the interesting thing. I mean, that's like the the being out with lanterns. It's a lantern, yeah. right? You're only going to be able to see two or three steps in front of you, but you can go a long way because you're moving into that little area of light that you're yeah. sort of carrying with you. And, you know, like we were saying earlier, I think if I could see way down the line to know where it was going, the whole purpose of writing it would be gone. Like I really do. I, I think, um, I think it was Joan Didion who basically said like, I write to know what I think. Like I don't know what I think or feel about something really until I've written my way as sort of deeply into it as I can. And then I'm like, Oh, and sometimes I'm like, well, maybe that makes me sort of dim because it seems like most of these things that you should have obvious feelings or obvious conclusions without actually having to write a book to figure out what you think about your life. Well, maybe it's a processing thing. Because, it is a processing yeah. thing. Yeah. And it's for me, it's, it's longhand even mm-hmm. like I process pen to paper and then I have to transcribe everything into my computer later. But that. That's sort of like how I think I, there's like this weird direct line that I imagine in my head that goes from my brain through my right arm into a pen, probably a uniball vision elite (laughs) black ink onto a piece of paper. And even the sound of the pen on the paper is part of that excavation Mm. for me. And, and so, yeah. And, and, that's the case with a book and it's the case with a 14 line poem. I have no idea what it's about. I don't know where it's going. I've never once sat down to write a poem about anything. Yeah. 
I'm going to write a poem about trees or about my kids or, or if I have, it was when I worked in publishing and that's spec work, right? Yeah. If somebody, uh, you know, client work, I know what it's about. If somebody asked me to write an essay about teaching poetry to kids. If somebody asked me to write an essay about parenting or about divorce or about whatever, that's spec work. Like I know what the audience is. I know why I'm writing it. I'm getting paid and I'm doing it. But my creative work doesn't operate under those parameters. I'm just, I literally show up having no idea what's about to happen. It's like improv. Yeah. Nobody's giving me a script. Nobody's giving me anything. I just kind of stand there until something happens. And sometimes it happens in 15 minutes and sometimes it takes 10 years for it to accrue and for me to know, I mean, I have definitely started writing poems or things in a notebook and then lost the notebook. And then two years later, found the notebook, dog-eared the page, lost it again, picked it up, drafted something, lost that in a Word document, got a new computer, found something on a, you know, an old hard drive. And maybe 10 years later, it becomes something that I could never have anticipated writing something down in a notebook as an earlier version of myself, you know, 10 years prior. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go sit down to write, are you, is it a, is it a, um, cause I've heard that and I get this from writing cause I do a lot of like writing when I'm uh, uh, restless mm-hmm. and I've heard you talk a lot about this, I think in relationship specifically to this book, looking for peace. Mm. And do you, I wondered if, because I think even writing from a question assumes a kind of clarity that isn't an emotional like knots. Yep. Is that the, is it when you sit down, is it like a, oh, there's like a thing and you don't even know? With this book, definitely. Yeah. I mean, with most things, no. Like there's there's not like an I like the I like the knot image. Mm. Usually there's not a knot I'm trying to untie. You know, I get I I feel the wind a certain way or I hear a bird make a certain sound or I you know, I, I think something, I overhear something my kids say and I write it down. Mm-hmm. But there's not something that's like nagging at me. But but I think this book really did begin with a knot. Like, yeah. you know, what happened to my marriage? What happened to my life? Why have I sacrificed so much? What does it mean to be good as a woman? And like, what does that look like? And how is that in many ways incompatible with art making? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, talk about a knot, like it was a big old tangle as I went into it. And my goal really was by the time I got done with the book, if I didn't have it all solved fine, but I didn't want to have the tangle anymore. I wanted to have a sort of like smoothness of experience where I could just, if not be completely at peace with it, just accept it and be able to set it down. And in a lot of ways I thought about this book as like, you know, and, and you're probably like this too. It's like the idea that won't leave you alone is the idea that takes priority. Yeah. Like they come and they knock and if they will not stop knocking, it's like, okay, I'll write you, yeah. right? Like yeah. I will listen to you. You're, you're taking priority right now. And, and if you don't knock loud enough, you're not going to get heard because there's some other idea that's going to like yeah. cut, cut in line. 
And for me, this book was like the elephant in the room. It was like the book I had to write so I could write other books, mm-hmm. like almost like a clearing. Yeah, you know, I was yeah. picturing like, um, I watched uh, Rosemary's Baby recently with my daughter because we're in like a horror movie <laughs> syllabus <laughs> in our house. Um, Cause why not? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like when, when you find that you have things in common with your kids, like lean oh, it's in, the best. That's lean the in. Best. And there's that scene where they go to look at the apartment at the very beginning when everything is still sweet and fine. And she hasn't gotten that terrific little pixie haircut yet. And they go into the apartment and there's uh, like an armoire that's been moved from the wall in front of the closet, which mm. we later then find spoiler alert goes into like the devil's apartment. <laughs> well, I haven't seen it either. So oh, no. but I probably we okay. can go into horror in a bit, but that, yeah. Okay. No so worries this, on spoilers. Okay. So this book, and, and when I saw that movie, I was like, oh, that's what this book was. Mm. It was the armoire sitting mm. in front of a doorway. And until I moved it, I couldn't go through. Mm. And so now I'm like, I can go through. It doesn't mean everything in the room behind me is solved or in place or fixed or frankly dusted and vacuumed. It just means I don't have to live there anymore. Mm. I love that. That's really powerful because I, I have certain projects like that, that I feel like have been blocking me. Yeah. And the reason I don't want to do them is almost because I know that's what they are. It's like, they're not, <laughs> it's not that good. It's not, that's I don't stubborn. want to do that. You know what? Like, it's like you want, especially a project of that size. I think you just have this feeling of, well, it should be the best thing I could do. And but yeah, no it's pressure. more just like in the way. Yeah. Yeah. No pressure. Uh, but it's more just like in the way there are certain projects where like, I feel like I have to work through that. So that I feel like that's probably in, encouraging to plenty of people that are doing nothing because they have those armoire in yeah. front of them. Yeah. Um, but uh, one thing that you said, I wanted to circle back to uh, we've kind of, I had, uh, my wife, Sophie on the podcast on episode 400, she's only been on a few episodes. She has gotten back into, she's a, um, she's got a degree in textile art and she's a fine artist. And now the kids are a little bit older all in school. She's starting to explore that again. And there's just so many things to grapple with that. Yeah. And if you could just speak to what you were getting at with being a quote unquote good woman and an artist and yeah. Cause a lot of this book is about that too. Um, yeah, yeah. I, it's just a very charged thing. And I know my listeners have, uh, almost everyone has a relationship with that topic. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always been a writer I mean, I was a writer when I was a teenager. Um, I was a writer in college. And so I, I was a writer the entire time I was with my Mm ex-husband. I was a writer before I had kids. Um, my first book was published before I had kids. And so, um, my expectation was I would always do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know exactly what the shape of it would be, how much time it would take, but it was never a sort of negotiable part of my life. Um, writing was never negotiable. It was always going to happen for me. The real issue, once I had two small kids and then, um, you throw a viral poem into the mix. And so when Good Bones went viral, I had published two books. I had, my third was on the way, 
But I was working from home, you know, being the sort of like work from home parent, yeah. you know, the, the person who's around, the kids are like in part-time preschool. Yeah. They're maybe gone a few hours here, a few hours there, but pretty much I'm doing all the, all the, you know, lunch packing and all the kid pickups and all the kid drop-offs and all the library story times and the doctor's appointments and the orthodontist appointments and the, you know, all the things, all the sort of primary caregiver things. And I could still write, you know, I could write when they napped, if they napped, I could write at night when they were in bed, if, you know, if that went well, which it didn't always. But once the poem went viral and I started getting requests, right, to like show up for a week and teach a workshop or go to a literary festival, it required me to be gone in a way that I hadn't been able to do. Yeah. And it was like, the best worst thing yeah, because it created a huge strain, um, you know, in my marriage and in my family. And it also was like a lightning strike for my writing life yeah. in a really beautiful way. Like this is what you dream of. Like if you're in a band, you want a radio hit. Yeah, exactly. Like you want to be able to go on tour. You want to be able to like have a, put out a record. You want to be able to do these things. And if you're a poet, you don't actually want to write for yourself and 10 yeah. other people forever. Yeah. Like it's such a gift to have your readership widened overnight in this astronomical way. I mean, it's bewildering and terrifying and strange to be a mom in central Ohio and have all of those things happening yeah. too. Like didn't think my poem would be in Meryl Streep's mouth, yeah. you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it was wild, but I think the thing that was so disheartening for me personally was I didn't feel like I could share the enthusiasm about what was happening with my partner because it was, it ended up being such a big inconvenience and such a stressor yeah. in the daily, you know, keeping things running smoothly of a household with two working people and two kids. And so it, it became a, problem. And it made me really, um, think a lot about like <laughs> my friend Wiley Cash, the novelist Wiley Cash made some t-shirts recently. And, um, he asked me if he, if he could send me one. And I looked at what they said. And one of them just says, art is work with a yeah. period. Yeah, and cool. I was like, could you send that to me? And I will take it on book tour with me because not just as a reminder for everyone else, but frankly, as a reminder for me. Yeah. Because it's so easy to um, to have that work diminished or seen as a hobby, especially if you're not paying your mortgage mm -hmm. with it. Yeah. Um, and so I've, I think I, um, for a long time, allowed it to take up less space, or, or. <sighs> thought that it needed to take up less space in order to kind of, you know, quote, keep the peace. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the sort of like hardest and most beautiful parts of being on my own now is that I don't need, there's no sort of permission or forgiveness required mm -hmm. to do what I do. Like I can just be happy about good news and I can do a lot of logistics to make it happen as a single parent. You know, it's thank goodness for grandparents and friends and partners. And, but I don't feel guilty. 
yeah. about succeeding at things, <laughs> or frankly, even just guilty about wanting yeah. to succeed. Like, and why, you know, why? Yeah. I'm sure many people can relate to that. I've someone to celebrate your wins with is a big thing that until you start having any wins, especially as a creator, you don't realize how important that is or how complicated that can be. You know, there's, there's times where I'm sure you've probably experienced when some of these bigger things have happened to you, all of a sudden you don't feel like you can talk about it with your friends, especially your creative friends, because they might not be experiencing that. And it can be really confusing to have you have your dreams come true and then they're nightmares for other people around you. Yeah. Um, and that, then you have to really enjoy it alone, which feels kind of like the, the worst. And so for people that don't know a big, a big thing that's going on throughout this book that you wrote is your divorce and, um, working through that, working through, I love the way that you put it because it helped me see the book even more clearly this idea of, um, yeah, where did I go? And it reminds me of, uh, and this idea of going after like the character at the start of the movie or the start of the book, start of the story wants to be a good woman as a goal, as a, like, that's what the hero's journey is. And then when you go out there and you're halfway through the journey and now it's time to come home to yourself, you're kind of like, where did I get this definition? What did, what? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a gendered definition. I mean, like what it means to be good. Like I think what most women and girls Mm. are taught is a lot of self-sacrifice. Definitely. um, And not taking up space um, not wanting too much. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the phrase, um, too big for your britches, mm. just never been used for a man. <laughs> like a man cannot be too big for their britches. Actually, a man can literally get too big for his britches, yeah. but the metaphor doesn't work because yeah. whatever size britches a man wants, he gets yeah. like, that is what you get. But if you are a woman who wants too much, who thinks too big, who aims too high, who talks too loud. Um, it's not okay. And actually I was talking to a friend today. I'm like, actually there's no way to feel that is acceptable. If you're a woman, if you're angry, you're shrill, that's a problem, (laughs) right? Like calm down. If you're not angry, like I actually, I, I have heard people talk about this book and say, well, she just doesn't seem angry enough. But you can't win, yeah, right? No. Like, no, I'm probably not. Maybe I'm not angry enough. Maybe that's the next book. I don't know. Yeah. But it's like if you if you prioritize peace and acceptance and and sort of like integration and wholeness and and moving on, right? If yeah. you prioritize peace and empathy and compassion and self compassion. It doesn't mean ignoring all this bad stuff that happened, but you're not angry enough. And then if you're angry, then you're vindictive and terrible. And it just, it it doesn't seem fair. And I don't think, you know, I think a lot about like, not only what am I modeling for my daughter, but also what kind of expectations from partnership and family and work and time and value and worth am I modeling for 
my son too. Like I do not want my children to think that art is not work. I do not want my children to think that moms are service providers. Um, I just, I feel like there's a lot of speaking of that, not right. Like there's a lot of undoing that needs to happen and it can't all happen at the family level. Yeah. Um, but you know, I can only control what I can control. And so that's, those are the conversations we're having in our house, right? Like this is real, this is real stuff. It has value. It's yeah. It's right. I, uh, the idea that the ultimate, uh, version of self would be self-sacrifice for a woman, mm-hmm. I think is completely accurate. And I, I think I was, uh, I'm still a, you know, imperfect person, imperfect man. So I don't, I'd never go out giving people marriage or, uh, parenting advice, but me either, but no. (laughs) Yeah. But I, but I think that I was, uh, lucky enough to see my mom and her sisters when they, when they got, when their kids got a little bit older and they weren't consuming them and they were just going through the, the model of sacrificing, not being anything, being nothing. When by the time their kids were teenagers, they all just flipped. They all flipped. And, and I think from early, from the start of my marriage, I was aware of that. And we were talking about that. Like, and, and, and Sophie wanted to be a stay at home mom. When they were little, she wanted to be all in, in that's in that, um, me too. Period of time. Yeah. yeah, me too. She wanted to experience that. Um, but I think, I don't think it, it, uh, meant that she didn't lose herself in that for a period of time, but I think we were mindful of it. And I think it comes from that modeling thing of, uh, you, you don't want your kids to, you don't want to live a life that your kids don't want any direction towards because they're not going to listen to you. You know yeah, what I mean? They're going to watch you. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And, and and I realize, and I write about this in the book, like, and it, it's, it's not a bad template yeah. per se, but I think I carried my upbringing as a template into my marriage, even mm-hmm. though we were very different people with different levels of education, different professional dreams, like very different lives in lots of ways. And yet we basically just sort of copy pasted. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of copy pasted the way I was parented into my, into my own adult life. And, and because I did that, I know there is a decent chance my kids are going to do something similar yeah. or that will be the tug, right? That's the impulse. And so what can I do to like, even if I can't change everything, like I'm still, I'm still by and large the service provider. Mm-hmm but we can talk about it. Yeah. We can be showing our thinking, right? And in you our can parenting. give them options so that they don't have to get in a decade into a direction where they're like, I'm not sure this is the way I wanted to do it. Or, this is not my beautiful life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like listen to David Byrne kids. Yeah. He's on the syllabus. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about um, the, the, this section is about um, the complicated relationship between you know, I spent the first 15 years of my creative practice trying harder and harder to get myself into the work in, in an authentic way, Mm -hmm. my experience. And that became, that ended up becoming memoir type content with my podcast and my talks and my comics. 
Over time, though, I started, this is just recently, I've started to feel more complicated around, okay, I make images as an illustrator, but when I'm doing, when it's about me, I'm becoming an image. I'm becoming, you know, and, and, uh, and I know in the book, you, you're like wrestling with, um, you know, like satisfying endings for stories or, you know, uh, creating a plot out of your life. And, you know, any writer, any poet, they're going to recognize these complicated experiences. And, um, and so that's the, I want to get into that. Um, but that's a preface for this question, which is, you know, a lot of this is about divorce. And I wondered for me, it felt, I don't want to be insensitive and say, your divorce was a metaphor for everybody else. Um, you know what I mean? I'll take it. It's a, I'm but taking I, one for the team here. But I, with the, you know, the past six years, past four years, whatever, everything in between, uh, I don't know one person that didn't divorce their previous life in a significant way. Oh, yeah. Were you cognizant of that as you were either as you were making it or as you've been promoting it or yeah I just the you know the connection of making yourself a metaphor or your divorce a metaphor I can get what's sensitive about that so I don't yeah. want to be insensitive no but, yeah. no honestly like honest metaphor is a more comfortable space for me to think of I would rather think of my divorce as a metaphor than my actual <laughs> divorce Andy <laughs> Um, like let's just, yeah. let's just put everything in the realm of like I, Plato's yeah, cave, like right? Yeah. The, the everything is like shadows and forms. Yeah, that's good. Let's live there, please. <laughs> Me too. I love it. Yeah. Metaphor, more metaphor, less life. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, in some ways I, I wasn't thinking about that because this writing experience for me was so intensely personal. And the weird thing about writing really intensely personal things that is so counterintuitive always is that the things that could have only happened to me are the things that people see themselves in most yeah. clearly. And so you would think, well, if I want to reach more people and have them see themselves in my work, I should just sit down and write about capital L love, yeah. some generic big and universal, and me. right? Yeah. Us, yeah. right? Like, and if I want, or if I really want to reach people, I should write about the world and feelings and like the sort of big abstractions, right? Yeah. And actually like writing about one specific conversation you have with your specific child with an actual dialogue back and forth in a very real place to you is the thing that people will, it's the stickiest. Mm -hmm. Like specificity is the stickiest thing and I like, that's something that as, you know, a young writer, I don't think I understood. I really thought, well, no one's going to care. Don't we all do that? No one's going to care about my little life. No one's going to care about my specific experience that doesn't really apply to anybody else. It's not that interesting. But what we go to books and art for, I think, is to interpret our own experience mm -hmm. via other people's. And it's been shocking to me, honestly, how many DMs and emails I've gotten over the past week in particular, now that the book is like out, out yeah. of like, this was my experience, or I saw myself in this, or just like, I feel so seen. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't thinking about 
what anybody else would glean. I just was focusing on telling the truest, most self-compassionate version of this story yeah. that I could. And, and that, that's just, that's sort of how I approach the process. And yet having said that, man, when I published Keep Moving in 2020, I was like, oh, we are all going through it. Mm-hmm. You know, every, I think you're right. Everybody has divorced some aspect of their life, whether it's their actual literal spouse or their job that they never wanted to go back to or the place that they've been living where they realized now that I can't leave my house, I don't want to live in this place anymore. I want to go like my quality of life is so much more important than this paycheck or this circumstance or this honor or this triumph. Um, and I think if there's anything good that's come out of the past few insane years, it is this sense that life is really short and can turn on a dime. And one day you could be at a concert and the next day you could just be hearing sirens and unable to leave your house for a year And if you're not making decisions for yourself and the people you love in a really clear, true way now, you might not get to do that next month or next year. So just, you know, do it. The picture I had, the image I had when I was thinking about how this book related to, I I think divorce is such a good picture because it's so significant of a before and after. It's so, such a, Mm. this is a, this is not what you saw your life was going to be. And then it's like a switch. Yeah. There's like a line of demarcation. There's like the before and it's the after. very clear yeah. because it's final. It's a thing. And it's also not where you thought you were going when you made that decision. And I feel if, if you, at the start of the pandemic, if you would have told me like in a few years, you're going to really feel different about who you are. Hmm. I would have thought, no, I'm not that kind of person. I don't, I've been reflective. I've been working it out. Yeah. What am I going to figure out yeah. now that I haven't already exactly. figured out? Yeah. And I and yet I feel not only that I know that my worldview is so different. My view of who I am, what I do, why I do it so different and I can sense that in every person I know. So is this related to fear? Because I have this theory right now that for Mm. years and years, a lot of my decision-making was fear-based. How can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Well, I suppose I could. (laughs) We are on a podcast. I'm like, wow, you sound like my therapist. (laughs) Say more. I'm like, oh, I'm paying you. Do I have to? I need advice. Like, why am I just talking to you? I can talk to my dog for free. Um, yeah, I just, I think, you know, part of it has to go back to, to that being good, Mm -hmm. right? Like doing the right thing, making the right choices. And I think a lot of those right choices were about other people, Mm -hmm. how to do right by other 
people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just fear of failure. And so not putting yourself out there, but not thinking big. Yeah. Because what happens if you fall flat on your face and then it's so embarrassing because someone's someone saw you go for the dunk and then like not even hit the rim. Yeah. And it's actually less <laughs> embarrassing just to stand on the sidelines yeah, and definitely. not try. And so that, I mean, that's one thing your life blowing up, like I do not recommend mm-hmm. like yeah. one Yelp star. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I don't, I, I'm not like, you know, a, I'm sort of a divorce whisperer. Now I get messages from people all the time, sure. but um, I do not recommend like blowing up one's life for the sake of blowing up one's life. But like, if there is any residual benefit to your life imploding, as there should be for Pete's sake, you should get some residual benefit from your life imploding. <laughs> like, where's my happy meal toy? You got um, a book. Yeah. That's I, one thing. Oh God, yeah. no. Okay. We'll talk about that okay. next. <laughs> um, it should be that you are less afraid yeah. because when it's some, in some ways, like when your quote worst has happened, you're free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I don't actually have to be afraid of holding it all together because Hey, newsflash, I can't. Mm -hmm. And what you just said about, hey, you got a book. So I've been, well, I write about this in the book, like the idea of lemons to lemonade, right? And I I have so many problematic feelings about this because I have, I mean, there are people who have said, thank goodness this terrible experience wasn't (laughs) wasted on someone who isn't a writer. Um, Or at least, you know, my friend Kelly, who wrote a book about, you know, being in an abusive marriage and someone actually said to her and probably multiple people, at least you got a book out of it, which is like, I would have written something else. Like I'm a writer. My material is the world. I could have written a pirate romance. My God, like anything (laughs) other than this. Okay. There's, there will be no pirate romance. Sorry for saying you got a book. No, no, no. But you know what I'll say? I want to say is that I realized this week, like being out on tour and talking about this incessantly, which was insane. Mm. I didn't get a book out of it. Mm. I made a book out of it. And that, I mean, it seems like such a silly verb shift. Um, It's sort of like the same thing as like, I don't have to rebuild my life right now. I get to. Yeah. But these little verb shifts for me, because I'm a word nerd and language matters to me, these sort of recastings um, matter to me. 100%. And I, it resonates uh, 100% for me. And I, as I've, uh, I alluded to, I'm doing a, a, a personal project of that kind of nature. I, you know, I, I feel like everybody has a, Maybe I I don't know I don't even know if I'd say a love hate relationship or just a hate relationship with the stages of grief idea. Um, <laughs> I love mint. I love frameworks. I'm a big framework guy. I think because my brain is just the most chaotic attic uh, that exists. So it's a, I, it's a horde. I, it so is. is mine. It's a nightmare. I know. It's a, there's so much going on. So I think frameworks I like cause they're buckets and they're like, here, put these here, put like organize this. It's okay. You're in anger now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you'll be in this exactly. other place soon. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I like some of that, but I also get the, um, just how, kind of cold that is when you're thinking about grief and, and thinking about like a label maker where you're just like, yep, that's yep, the there we anger are. bucket. Yep. Um, but I, 
and I always, but I liked the idea of they recently had uh, amended it and said that the last stage is making meaning of it. And I liked the idea of it. And then when I started to do this project about this long-term pain in my life, of my whole life, I was kind of blown away by the, the considerable noticeable shift in me when I had like literally took those pieces and built a thing with it. Yep. It, it blew me away. And so I I just want to highlight that shift of you didn't get a book. You, you made a book with these pieces and, and just encourage people to do that. Even if it feels outside of, cause I, for a long time, probably part of the reason I didn't do it is because I thought like, I'm a commercial illustrator. Like, what am I going to do? How do I do that with that? I'm a poet. Why would I write a memoir? Right, exactly. Like, how many sonnets do I need to make over and over and over again to get to this word count? My goodness. (laughs) You know, this seems like unwieldy. But I And I'm going to get the quote wrong, but I I think it's Eudora Welty. And um, it's something like, I love to confront an experience and resolve it as art. Yeah. Right. There's something incredibly satisfying. It doesn't mean it's solved. Right. It doesn't mean that like, well, now I can, you know, whitewash my hands of that and that's fixed. But it's like the armoire moving away from the doorway. You don't have to live in that room in the same way anymore. Like it's it's really transformative and not in a I think not in a false before and after caterpillar to butterfly. Neat sort of like culturally obsessed way, (laughs) you know, it's messy. And frankly, I I think I'm still, I'm making meaning, but I'm still also cycling through all of those earlier grief stages. Like that's Mm -hmm. the thing they don't tell you. It's like a washing machine that's broken. (laughs) And it's like, why are we in spin again? Right? (laughs) Like I thought we were done with spin. We should be rinsing and no, no, no. Like you're going to keep, it's recursive and, and kind of forever. That's the thing. Like you don't live an experience and then even if you make art of it, set it down and and it doesn't inhabit you and you don't inhabit it anymore. I think I think more about endurance than I do about healing. Mm. Healing makes me uncomfortable. Like the idea of healing mm. makes me uncomfortable because I I think there's a neatness to that that I I like fundamentally distrust. Yeah. Um But endurance for me is like, okay, maybe I can't heal. Maybe I can't like set it down, but I can learn how to carry it differently. Yeah. And for me, art making is a way to carry things better. Yeah. I I love that. It reminded me of how different uh, something can feel in your hands versus a backpack, Mm -hmm. how much heavier it can be when it's held on you differently. Um, that's, that does really, uh, name my kind of experience with that. And then also you talking about being able to move it for me as I've, uh, um, kind of one thing I've noticed is that it, the, in, it, in, it kind of consuming me has become since I've started working on that project, a little bit more of a choice. Yeah. Not completely. I'm sure there's times where it won't be, but I was listening to Elliot Smith mm, the other day because, you know, yeah. And you know, uh, did you see that clip that went viral? 
with him? No. Oh, you should check it out. It's it's like <laughs> it's a doozy because okay. <laughs> it's this 90s TV thing. There was just a lot of like in a certain section, maybe it was just design Twitter was going bonkers for this, but um certain section section of Twitter was did a whole day about this clip. Oh my god, I'm not even in that section of you, Twitter. I, know, I was I not invited know. into that section well, of Twitter. Well, at first I thought I just randomly stumbled upon it, watched it and thought, "Whoa, that was a crazy experience." And then I realized, then it came back around. Everyone's like, man, I can't believe this random uh, clip is going viral today. Um, and it's him in this like morning 90s TV show. Okay. That's like wacky and like subversive. And they're like, Ugh. and it, cringe, I'm telling you. Like cringe. Massively cringe. Especially yeah. when you know it's Elliot Smith sat there about, it's it's the awfulness of it feels like the awfulness of America, the culture, all that. And then he plays and it makes it just feel like everyone's like, yeah, in your face. You all know your phonies like watch this. So you should, you should go check it out. I'll, I'll send you that. Send clip. it to me. Um, but I was listening to Elliot Smith the other day and I, uh, because of that clip, I started, go I went back and was revisiting it and I could feel, Oh, this song always reminds me of my mom. And I thought, I'm actually choosing to feel this feeling yep. because there's something about the bittersweet nature of it that I enjoy. There's yeah. a, th you know, there's a brute like, and sometimes it's like a bruise pressing. Yeah. 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 And that's a lot of, I mean, a lot of uh, particularly writing memoir, sort of life writing, mm -hmm. There is a kind of like stewing in one's own juices Yeah, totally. that has to happen. And um, if you hate it, you're probably not ready to tackle the project. Yeah. And it's a good sign if you're willing to kind of like go down the shaft into that mine over and over again and come up filthy at the end of the day and you don't feel completely depleted. Yeah. Then you're you're in it in the in the best way. And it's cool, too, because I the other interesting part of it is I wouldn't have got there if I hadn't started with the unresolved. Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know where to what to do with it. Um and yeah, I was just kind of surprised by the actual shift that making art made in yeah. me, you know? Um, and so, okay. Uh, last little section, uh, I wanted to go to, you, you mentioned um, why you had to write it as a memoir. And when I was saying, oh, I don't know how to deal with this as an illustrator, I wanted to talk to you about the a prompt that you sent out on your uh, Substack uh, newsletter that I I thought was brilliant. Uh, it really illuminated some things in my own practice, and it's where. Could you talk about what you mean by, if you recall? Sometimes when people tell me <laughs> I'm something, like, what I'm is like, this prompt? I know. Yeah. I'm like, I hope you tell I'm me like, what it is. Remember I when you said that on the episode 233? <laughs> I'm like, I don't no. know what I said last week. Genuinely do not. <laughs> Where am I right now anyway? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you said be a blank in your blank. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Because I think this is so huge. So many creators that I adore have found this space. Yep. Could you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so I, I was talking about, for me, um, filling in those blanks is be a poet in your prose. Um, and if if it was someone, you know, going from from fiction writing to poetry, it would be a fiction, it would, you know, be a fiction writer in your, in your poetry. It's carrying your skill set and sort of like particular brand of magic 
your secret sauce, all your stuff that you've learned and your kind of comfort, what I would call like the home genre, which for me is poetry always and forever. Um, I'm a loyalist in that way. So carrying that into whatever project you're doing, which means, um, as my friend Syed Jones said last night, I was like, I had to write this memoir as a poet. I couldn't write it in any other way. And he said, well, yeah, you don't want to ghost write your own book. Yeah. yeah. And that's what it would feel like if you were sort of like ventriloquizing through some version of yourself that would feel appropriate or right for that container or that form or that genre. And so for me, I couldn't, you know, being a poet isn't something I can like take, like put on and take off. Mm -hmm. It's just who I am. It's not just how I write. It's how I engage with the world the way you do as an artist. Every, I mean, I can't even walk around the block with my dog except as a poet. Mm -hmm. Cause I'm like, Oh, look at those lilacs look at the (laughs) petals on the ground like someone just had a party yeah and the confetti's still here you know i can't move in the world i can't listen to music i can't do anything i probably can't even email except as a poet and so why would i enter this book project feeling like an interloper on somebody else's territory you know prose writer's territory the only way i could do it was as myself the only way I could be successful at something new was to bring myself to it. And by successful, I mean that I'm happy with it. I don't mean that it's like commercially viable. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like the, the not feeling like you have to shed essential parts of yourself in order to try something new, but actually considering that you're everything about you is exactly what that project needs, Mm -hmm. in fact. Like your thinking, your heart, your experience, your toolkit, your, I mean, even the things you think will make it difficult are the things that will make it good. Yeah. You know, like me, like, oh my God, how am I gonna get to 65,000 words? Yeah. How many sonnets is that? You know, even the challenges that the form presents, if you're going into a new space, even that is just an opportunity for you to kind of engineer a unique way to like succeed in it that Mm. I think could be Mm. permission giving to other people. And it's like, I was thinking about that earlier. I'm glad I remembered it because I don't have a pen and paper to write things down when you say things. But when oh, you sorry. said, no, 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 <laughs> maybe I'll put no, but look, I'm remembering <laughs> when you said that you um, are trying in these conversations to show your thinking more and to allow for speaking aloud these like digressions or sidesteps. I'm actually doing that more in my poetry now, allowing myself to show up in the the sort of like messy, most human way. And the reason I'm doing it is the same reason I share first embarrassing first drafts on my Substack because I think it's permission giving. Yeah, definitely. Because people will listen or read and be like, that's okay. And I see myself in it and now I can do it too. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And uh, I, so uh, uh, I'm a, I'm gonna, I'm a, avid like footnote in my conversation. I'm always giving credit. I'm always like, 
this is this, this is where that came from. And so I have no other choice because what I need to say is something that Tim Ferriss said. But now I've quoted Tim Ferriss and mentioned Joe Rogan in one hour. This is concerning. It is concerning. And it makes me want to look in the mirror and think what's happening. But um, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, um, Tim Ferriss, one thing, uh, I, I don't fit the the bill for his audience or anything, but um, but. His interv- his, he's interviewed a few of my favorite people yeah. very well. Yeah, he has. Yeah. He has. Um, yeah, he really has. Uh, the, his, Susan Cain on the on his show is, is a great, great interview. Um, just to redeem myself. Thank uh, you. Not, no, no offense, Tim Ferriss. Yes, offense, Joe Rogan. I can't, I can't defend you. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, Tim Ferriss always t- says, uh, "What would it look like if it was easy?" Mm. And that that's what I was thinking when you were talking about how do I get to this word count? <laughs> it's almost like a stylist. You don't really, I, like I, um, I always think about if you want to be funny, just don't filter yourself. Don't try to be funny. Just let your brain the way it does thinking, just do it. Just like, just like I just did. I just blah, whatever that is. There's something just interesting for others about that. And so if you think I got to get to this many words, just think of how could you, because if you can, that becomes a style point, yeah. that becomes a permission. It becomes something interesting about what you had to do to get to the end of this. Um, I think that that's, uh, yeah, really fascinating. And I, and I love the idea of um, be a poet in your prose. For me, I, 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 I've felt, um, like, uh, a, a storyteller in my illustration. I don't feel illustration, but then I've flipped it. It's gone back and forth, but I loved, um, what you said about, I could see how someone might think, oh, I'm a poet when I'm the, on the street thinking, oh, you're like overly identifying with your job or your mm. work. But I totally I think what I, how I heard it was, um, poet was the word that was the label for the way that your brain works. That's right. It's not about writing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really not like, uh, people ask all the time, like, when do you get to call yourself a poet? And I'm like, well, if you write poems, you're a poet, you actually don't need to, you know, necessarily publish them or have books or anything, but yeah, it, it really is the way the brain works and that can be applied to anything. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and the amazing, um, the amazing thing about that is too, is that it gives permission to anyone because you can write poetry because your brain is the type of brain that creates poetry or you can write prose and do it as a poet and still call yourself a memoirist. Right. You know, so it, it's, it doesn't mean, oh, you can only call yourself a poet if you naturally walk down the street and have these images come to you. You can, there's a million ways in and they're all interesting. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I've thought a lot about, for me, a uh, story, I kind of see it as synonymous with analogy, the way that I think about story at least. Um and I realized like, oh, that's because my, I always think of, uh, the ADHD brain for me means there's no bottom floor. So there's a, the literal world doesn't, I can't speak to it. I love that. It's 
frustrating. And I realized. And yeah, this feels very familiar to me. Really? As someone who has not been I'm diagnosed not to, with ADHD. I'm not diagnosing you. <laughs> I'm like, my brain's a horde and I only think in metaphor. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, we'll talk later. <laughs> I'll, I'll send, I'll hook you up with a guy um, in town. Um, I know a guy. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, that to me, I realized like, oh, all of my metaphor and analogy, it's literally because it's the only, if I'm in an argument, it's so annoying. I'm in an argument with my wife. I'm like, here's an analogy to explain what I mean. Amen. And knowing that that's my work too, it's, I feel like so like, I know it feels patronizing. It feels all these things, but I can't help it. This yeah. is literally the only way I know how to think. It's not turn offable. No. Because yeah. it's who you are. Yeah. And so that's why it's funny. Like, I mean, I guess being a poet is my job, but mm -hmm. I don't think of it. And art is work, but it's, I've never thought of it yeah. in that way. It's just a sort of like, it's more way, way of life, way of living. Yeah. Um, and I've also found ways to sort of like make a living from my way of living. Yeah. But even if I couldn't make a living at it, it would still be my way of living. Yeah. Yep. And that makes total sense. And I think, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start winding it down um, with, I think there's two really interesting prompts there, depending on where you are creatively in your own personal journey. One is finding terms that feel like this is how my brain works. Like learning there were, you know, storytelling was such a, when I really understood it in a particular way, it was like, Oh, this is like looking into a mirror for the first time. And mm -hmm. I get it. Um, so, so if you don't have that, I think finding that is a really powerful thing. And then if you do feel like you have that, uh, applying it in a mismatch kind of way or like shoehorning it into a different medium can be really interesting. Cause uh, I don't know about you, but, um, with, with, uh, my home base, I can be a lot more precious than if I apply it outside of you know, I don't know if you felt like that in a way of like, oh, I'm not writing a poem. So it can be all kinds of things or, or whatever. Yeah. The possibilities were endless. Yeah. I mean, I'm basically just making, I'm making this thing up. And what I built ultimately is a book that doesn't look like any other book I've read, Yeah, yeah. which is scary in a way. Cause it's like, can I, well, here's my book editor. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe this isn't what you thought it would look like because it doesn't look like any of the quote comps mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the truest I could get to my experience formally that I, that I could get like this was as close as I could get to how this experience happened and felt and the sort of like, the structure of it really, for me, reflects the lived experience. And so form and content are kind of, you know, n not divorceable yeah. in this book. And it, it's so funny that uh, I, I find in myself, and I, I've heard a million creators say this, we all know we're trying to do something different. But then when we start, do, when we did it a different way, we're like, oh, it's not like the other ones. This isn't a book. This isn't a, you're like, yeah, you invented a thing. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're after. Like yeah. that's the best case scenario. Yeah. Inventive is a perfect adjective. And if anybody yeah. ever uses inventive or innovative about your work, it's a compliment, even if they mean it yeah. in a snarky way. 
Forget uh, them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I love that. I love uh, creations as much as I like the analysis of creations. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the way I would pitch this book to somebody who's going to read it, it feels like um, you could have wrote it. You could have because there are these little snippets, chapters, and it feels like you could have wrote all of those as poems or you could have wrote them this way where it's like the metaphors are still there, but you're really like just kind of explaining it. It's like the explanation of a poem, which for someone like me who I don't, um, I think it probably just was because I grew up in uh, Whiteland, Indiana. I didn't grow up reading poetry. And so I didn't either. It's not, and, and yeah, yeah. And I, but, and there's something about it that didn't feel accessible to me, even yeah. in any kind of way. Um, this is a really kind of middle ground that is really powerful. Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of my poetry self, right? Mm. Like I'm bringing in, I think the attention to language and metaphor and, but I'm also, you know, I just sort of like knocked down the fourth wall immediately and, mm-hmm. and just spoke directly to the reader all through the book because I wanted, if I, I knew if I was going to be as vulnerable as I was going to have to be in the experiences I was going to share, I wanted to be that vulnerable and direct and authentic in the telling, yeah, like in the actual making of the thing. And so it feels to me like a conversation I'm having with each individual reader yeah. and we're kind of co-participating yep. in the story yeah. together. You know, you and I, whether you're listening to it on audio or whether you're reading it and that's what I, I wanted it to be an intimate and yes, accessible experience. And and poems, I think, are by and large intimate and accessible, but I needed to be able to do a whole lot more kind of storytelling. Yeah. And the poem didn't feel like the right container for me. Yeah. 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 That that makes a ton of sense. Okay. I'll ask you one last question and then I, I'll do my best. Uh, uh, and I'll let you let you wrap this up. Um speaking of poetry. For those who maybe find it daunting to start reading poetry in any form, what do you feel like people get wrong about approaching poetry? Uh, Trying to figure out what it means. Yeah. I think um, most of us were taught poetry poorly by well-meaning people who treated it like a riddle. Yeah. And so we were handed a poem in school, maybe high school, maybe middle school, and said, um, here's the poem, here's the surface language, but what does the writer really trying to say, right, really in italics? And then, you know, the clock starts ticking and the spotlight comes on and the sweat starts pouring and you're looking sort of between the lines trying to figure out what it, what it means that you are outside of and it doesn't make sense to you. And that, that the way of approaching poetry that tells you that you are on the outside of the poem, that the poem is keeping its secrets from you and that you need to be better and smarter than you are in order to unlock the secrets of the riddle of the poem is so different from the way that I approach writing and talking even to my own kids about poetry. It's just, it, you feel like you're failing from the beginning. 
right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Frankly, if someone asks me what my poems mean, I don't know. And it's not because I'm not smart and I don't understand poetry. Yeah. I wrote the damn thing. Yeah. I just, I can't and slash refuse to give you the Cliff's Notes version of yeah. this thing. Like the poem means the poem. Read the poem. I already gave you it. Like you read it. And so I think if, if for people who feel intimidated by poetry or who feel like I'm not a poetry person or I'm not smart enough or I get books, but I don't get poems, mm. look at a poem Think about the pleasures of it for you. Mm-hmm. What do you notice in it? How did the person make it? Oh, I, I see they broke the line here. I wonder if it's because they wanted to emphasize that word. I like that. Mm-hmm. Say it out loud to yourself. Get the feelings and the sounds of the words in your mouth. Think about what it reminds you of in your own life. There's no wrong answer, really. Like yeah. whatever you get from it is good. Yeah. And if it doesn't speak to you, it doesn't mean you don't get poems. It might mean that that poem isn't for you. Like I, I think about it, I'm like, man, imagine if, imagine if you thought Garth Brooks was music. Mm. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So like the only thing you've ever heard is Garth Brooks. I mean, no offense, Garth Brooks. Yeah. Right. No but like, I don't know why I just thought of Garth Brooks, but like, so but imagine that is music, right? That's right. music. Yeah. So you have been, you're in school and you're in music class and they're like, here's music. And it's Garth Brooks. Yeah. If you don't like or get, or that doesn't resonate with you, it doesn't mean you don't like music. Mm-hmm. It actually doesn't even mean you don't like country music. Yeah. Yeah. It just means you don't like, it doesn't actually even mean you don't like Garth Brooks. Mm-hmm. It means you don't like that song or it doesn't speak to you, or it doesn't do anything for you, it doesn't move you, it doesn't resonate. So find something else, and and that's the other thing. It's like, we need to be teaching more living writers. We need to be bringing people, writers who are writing about things that mirror their own experiences, because Mm. if all we're teaching, and I love Emily Dickinson, I used her as my epigraph, but if all we're teaching kids because of testing is Dickinson Mm. and Frost, and Shakespeare, and maybe Langston Hughes, all good, great, not, you know, 10 out of 10, no notes, except there's a whole lot of other stuff that we're not teaching them that they might just like be completely lit up by. Yeah. And that's a a great point that I would have never considered is by, by teaching only things that are not of the time, they are by nature implying that they are a kind of riddle because you are going to have to bridge that gap. You're going; it's going to feel like a code yes. to un- to break. I mean, just in, even at the language level, yeah. like Shakespeare, and it also makes poetry out to be something that dead people did. Not something that living people do. I remember going to a dentist years ago and they asked what I did. And I said, I'm a poet because I had finally gotten to the place where I could just say that Mm -hmm. and welcome whatever weird response (laughs) the person had. And the person actually said, people still do that. Mm. Like, yeah. And I use a feather (laughs) pen. Like, yes, people still do that and will until the planet finally dies. Mm. Yes. Not, not, you know, people have painted since Rembrandt. Yeah. Like art is not something that exists 
only in the past. And if we're only learning about art made by dead people, then what are we telling the next generation about what is possible for them? Mm, that, that's really good. And, it, and it, I'd, I'd never thought about when we present a poem, it, it made me, uh, the way I was thinking about it was like giving someone a bite of food, but telling them this is a math equation. What's the answer? Instead of just being like, how does it taste? Do you like that? Do you want to spit it out? Then spit it out. Do you like the way it tastes? What's the texture? How does it make you feel? What does it remind you of? How does it smell? What sensory experience are you having? What do you wish were different? Mm. Why do you think they made it this way? You know, I just published something in the Washington Post about talking to my son about Robert Frost. Mm. And he ended up loving this poem, like Mm. loving it. And not because it's contemporary and not because it really mirrors a whole lot of his experience, but I really do think that showing him a peek behind the curtain and talking to him about the engineering Mm. of the thing, how Mm. it was made and the choices that went into it made him feel empowered Mm -hmm. to receive the pleasures of the poem instead of feeling like he was standing outside a a locked gate. Yeah, yeah, and it feels like, with treating it like a math equation, you're feeling like there is a right answer to this. Right. A, it's, it's seven. It was, yeah. that's the answer. <laughs> like that's what you're looking for. Remainder um, two. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. Uh, well, okay. I could do this for uh, <laughs> a lot longer. Um, this was fantastic. And I, I, I loved your book. I'm really excited for you that it's out. And, yeah. uh, and I'm equally excited to live in the same city, the same area as you. And uh, thanks for coming up and chatting with me. Thanks so much. Massive, massive thanks to poet Maggie Smith for taking some time to come up to my studio and hang out and chat and talk creative shop. I hope you all got a ton from this episode. Um, And go check out Maggie's new book. You could make this place beautiful. Um, It's, it's a, fantastic book and memoir and I think it will speak to a lot of the places that we find ourselves as creators um, especially if ambition or accomplishment has become a problem in your life or um, or you're stuck with unsolvable problems that just cannot be conquered before you get started um, yeah I, I think you're going to love it thanks again Maggie and hope we get to uh, speak together um, soon. Massive thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing this show so beautifully. And thanks to Ryan Appleton, Katie Chandler, and uh, of course, Sophie Miller for podcast assistance of all kinds. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. <laughs>